Hi, I'm Matthew Kind. Every Monday, look for a fresh new episode where I'll take you behind the scenes and interview the insiders that are shaping the rapidly evolving cannabis industry. Learn more at cannainsider.com. That's C-A-N-N-A insider.com. Now here's your program. Should you be producing your own cannabis product or outsourcing that to expert contract manufacturers as you focus on your brand? Here to help us answer that question is Alex Rowland of Nootropic. Alex, welcome to Canna Insider. Thank you. I appreciate it. Give us a sense of geography. Where are you in the world today? So I'm actually in Santa Rosa right now. Santa Rosa, uh, California is about an hour north of San Francisco, and it's where we have our facilities. Okay. And what is Nootropic on a high level? So Nootropic is a contract manufacturer for cannabis products. And what that means is brands, uh, specifically cannabis brands in California, come to us and engage with us to manufacture products on their behalf. So this includes everything from pre-rolls to packaged flour to concentrates to vape carts, topicals, tinctures, edibles, beverages, you, you name it, we're, we're making it. Okay. And give us a little detail about your background and journey and how you got to this point in setting up Nootropic. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's actually rather a circuitous route. I actually came out of tech. I've been starting tech companies since the mid-1990s. Back in 1995, actually, was the first internet company I started. And I've been involved in those tech companies out in the East Coast until 2002, and then moved out to California uh, most of those were enterprise software, uh, most recently in media. We actually started a business back in 2009 that wound up in 2013, getting to number eight on the Inc. 5000 fastest growing businesses. So I've been around a lot of fast growing tech companies, but I've been looking at cannabis really for probably 20 years as, as a market segment I thought would be very interesting to get into. But it wasn't until 2012 when Colorado and Washington, um, you know, was moving towards legalization. And then ultimately in 2015, when California started taking the same steps for the passage of Mercursa. Um, to me, all these markets were interesting, but they were simply that a curiosity until you have some sort of regulatory framework um, to build a business model around. So once that happened in 2015, um, I decided to jump into the space. Uh, I was still working in tech, so we sold off some of the, the companies we had in the space, a Canadian company. And I went on kind of a walkabout, as I'd call it. I spent really uh, the last half of 2015 and almost all of 2016 driving up and down the state of California, talking to operators, regulators, uh, going to see dispensaries, grow operations, uh, kitchens, really talking to anyone who would talk to me, um, given us business, trying to get an understanding as to what exactly was going on in the space uh, and where I thought the business opportunity was. And, and really, the net culmination of that uh, adventure was, by the end of 2016, it was fairly apparent to me that manufacturing was a, was a big weakness uh, in the space and something that we need to focus our attention on. Okay. So, you, Alex, you did all this due diligence with uh, driving around California, talking to operators. What was kind of your key insights you had when you were doing that? Yeah, so I think it was fairly apparent to me that regulators were going to focus on manufacturing. The regulators are really there primarily to ensure consumer safety when you launch new products like this uh, and new categories. And that was going to be clear that uh, cannabis was obviously something that 
had a great deal of stigma, and I think regulators were especially uh, concerned about. So consumer safety was going to be paramount. Along with that, obviously, tax collection is probably their second highest priority. Um, but I think you know what we realized is that while there were a lot of people cultivating cannabis, and a lot of people actually at that point in time even retailing it, the middle of the supply chain was radically underserved. You know, the, the way it was really traditionally is most cannabis was flour and it was farms would walk into a dispensary with literally pounds of flour in turkey bags and would sell it directly to the dispensary who would then go ahead and, and segment it out to consumers. And that was changing dramatically. A, you know, all flour products were going to have to be prepackaged and certified as, as safe by regulators. But B, there was a proliferation of these new products coming out, uh, concentrates, topicals, tinctures, all these infused products that were going to re- require manufacturing expertise. And the state of the art at that point in time was literally people's private kitchens, a converted garage, you know, a barn here and there. I, I mean, it was, you know, literally a joke. And we knew that given the regulatory scrutiny and the importance of delivering a high quality, consistent product in order to build brands, uh, that manufacturing is going to be kind of the fulcrum of the market. And there's just nothing there. So we looked at that and said, initially, we were going to go ahead and, and make manufacturing expertise a core part of our, our business model. And it became fairly apparent, I think, early on, back in early 2017, that this was a function that we were going to have to provide for other brands because most people were just not doing it well. So I, I think that was really it. We came to that conclusion in late 2016 and and really said about the, the goal of producing or, or developing a very scaled, high-quality manufacturing solution that all brands could share. Okay. Do you have an example of a nootropic client and how they partner with you? Yeah. So I think one of the, the interesting cases actually, you know, because I, I break it up in a distinct quadrants of clients, what we really specialize in are unlicensed brands. So brands who are IP licensing organizations, these are companies who have figured out, you know, product market fit, they've formulated some product, designed the packaging, but now they actually need to go about executing on that. Uh, And if you look at California, like most of the states, there's a fairly rigorous, rigorous regulatory set of hurdles you have to overcome to get licensed and operating in the state. So most brands right now are not going through that process and certainly in the future are not going to go through that process of building their own facilities. So um, these are unlicensed brands and these are brands that are either pure startups and they've raised a bunch of capital or they might even be licensed brands in other states that are looking to get into the California market or they were in the old medical Prop 215 market and they're trying to get back up and running. There's a whole bunch of different scenarios, but generally speaking, the typical client is unlicensed but they have either sales velocity already in the marketplace, either through some other contract manufacturer, or like in the case of Biscotti, they had their own manufacturing facility. They're looking to uh, divest themselves of that asset and move to this asset light model. But that is really typical. It's it's someone who is saying, we're going to focus on sales and marketing and building demand velocity, the retail channel. We want you guys to focus on all the logistics around making sure our supply chain uh, is able to scale to meet our demand and able to deliver products uh, reliably at, at the quality that we, our clients would expect. That is that is really the division of labor. So it's it's unlicensed brands. Okay. And what do the clients come back and typically tell you is like that they identify as their biggest one or two benefits? I mean, you have a lot of benefits there, but what is the thing that their biggest pain point or opportunity that 
you help them with? I think it's uh, financial resources and focus. I'd put those two at the top of the list. Uh, what we hear a lot is manufacturing compliant product in cannabis is enormously challenging. I mean, we, we still, we've been at this now for, for a solid year and uh, we still understand and go through the pain and suffering of, of delivering compliant product in the marketplace to our clients' exacting specifications and our level of quality that we require out of our, our facilities. That's enormously challenging to do. And, and what winds up happening is when you're a brand and you're trying to manage the supply chain, it's very difficult to focus on selling. Most of what you wind up focusing on are supply chain logistics and how you actually fill those shelves. So we allow brands to really get back to focusing on building that demand at the retail channel and let us focus on all those logistics. Uh, and the second thing is something that we've seen over and over again with brands is lack of financial resources leads to gaps in their supply chain. Um, and what I mean by this is we've seen this over and over again. A brand will launch into the market. Uh, they'll do a great job of selling. They start to get some scale. And then they run into cash flow issues. They can't support uh, buying additional biomass or packaging or whatever the case may be to refresh their inventory levels. Collections takes longer than they think to happen, and they start to run into gaps financially. And that leads to gaps in delivery to dispensaries. And I think as anyone can tell you in the market, once you uh, accept an order from a dispensary and you're unable to follow up that order with consistent delivery, the dispensary tends to drop you. And selling back into that dispensary is 10 times harder than selling in the first time. So these, these brands kind of come up, get great velocity at retail, they have supply problems. Those retailers drop them and they disappear within months. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense because people go into, into a retail environment, a dispensary, they, they like a product and they get just totally disappointed when it's not there. And uh, these dispensaries are not in the business of disappointing customers. So they want something consistent. Even, it's, even if it's not an A plus in their mind, they say it's a B plus, but we can always get it. So I, I totally understand what you're saying there. Yeah, how many... You know, how big a problem is this? I mean, you're obviously, you sound busy, you have clients, but how many cannabis product companies are suffering from some of these issues you described? I would say almost all of them. <laughs> okay. I mean, the, the, the funny thing is, I think, you know, there's rare exceptions to this. But if you look at the vast majority of brands in the marketplace, there's a few that stand out, I think, that have stood the test of time. And and mostly that's because they've gotten a robust supply chain in place and managed to stay on store shelves. Um, you know, and I think that's, uh, that's about, yes, building a brand and, and recognition with the consumers such that they're looking for that product. But a lot of what allows brands to, to remain relevant and uh, sticky is the ability to actually get their supply chain right and consistently deliver a broad range of products into the retail outlets. That is a very, very rare bird right now. It, it's There's not many brands, even some brands that were very successful back in the Prop 215 days before a lot of the testing requirements and kind of regulatory hurdles were, were erected. They could manage their supply chain. They had enough cash and kind of wherewithal to, to make it happen. But these new regulations have really made uh, execution that much more complicated and a lot of brands that were very successful have not been as successful now in this new market. So it's it's a rare exception, but but we've got a line out the door. I mean, we, we started onboarding clients back in January, started shipping first product in March. 
and by May, it was pretty clear that we had essentially maxed out all of our processing cycles. And we're still in a position right now where the, the 14, 15 clients or so that we onboarded, we're only able to execute on about you know 40 or 50% of their current uh, order volume uh, because we're just constrained by the capacity of our facility. So we're doing a lot to, to help resolve that problem, but I don't see any shortage of demand right now. Okay. So are you going to build a, a second facility or expand your existing facility or go to Southern California too? Or what is that going to look like? All of the above. We, we've actually already expanded by adding a second facility. So we actually have two facilities now in the Santa Rosa area. Uh, we have a third under contract that we're starting construction on uh, in December. Uh, we have another facility in Santa Rosa that we'll probably be putting an offer in on uh, in the next three days. Uh, and a a sixth facility down in Southern California in downtown LA that we're looking to put an offer in on before the end of the year. Okay. So you mentioned Los Angeles. Is this, is this kind of um, an opportunity since, you know, COVID-19 is still a thing. There's probably in the commercial real estate space, some softness, which translates into an opportunity for you. Would you say that's accurate? Could you describe that a little bit? It's actually commercial space is different than industrial space. What we're seeing is there's a lot of office space freeing up, but industrial space is still trading at a premium. This is because if you really look at what's going on in the broader economy, more and more people, you know, people are still buying things, but they tend to be buying it more on places like Amazon than they're going directly out to retailers. And what that's leading to is more and more of this uh, kind of industrial uh, space distribution space is trading at a premium, whereas a lot of retail and commercial space is uh, going vacant. So, you know, the facilities we tend to focus on are still industrial warehouses and distribution facilities. So that market is still red hot. Okay. So sometimes building a manufacturing facility and operations, you know, people build out or companies build out operations that are too small or the opposite problem is too big. Can you talk about kind of finding that sweet spot there and how you look at that? Yeah, I think this is part of the reason why we focused on our specific model. But we recognize very early on there's this, if you're going to be a brand and you're going to own your own facilities to manufacture, there's this very difficult decision you face at the beginning. Either A, do we go conservative and um, build a very small facility to keep our capital investment low and to keep our overhead low um, in the expectation that we're going to grow more slowly. You know, the problem with that, obviously, is that if you're able to get a lot of sales done, now all of a sudden, A, each of the unit you produce is more expensive because of everything's done manually. You don't have a lot of automation or mechanization in your facility. And B, you're just capped in terms of the total amount of product you can push out of a building. The other choice is you go ahead and uh, get very aggressive and you invest substantial amounts of capital into these facilities and and you essentially overbuild, assuming that you'll be able to sell off that capacity through product sales uh, fairly quickly. So you carry a lot of fixed overhead on a per unit basis, which again makes those units very expensive, but you're assuming over time that your sales will catch up and put you in a position where you're very cost competitive. Neither one of these decisions uh, is very palatable. And I think it's part of the reason why more and more brands, as they're getting into the market now, are not looking to do either one of those things. They're looking to avoid that um, that question entirely and just look to uh, variableize all those fixed costs with a with a provider like us. Um, I think it's very very difficult. And what you're seeing is is a lot of brands in California 
who overbuilt. They got easy access to capital back in 2017 and 2018. They massively overbuilt their facilities. And what they're doing is they're doing both, right? They have their own brands and they're also kind of moonlighting and selling excess operating capacity to third party brands. But we don't think that's a great solution either because you're naturally conflicted. You're you're kind of enabling your competitive uh, products to um, through your manufacturing capacity. And it's not really your expertise. Your expertise should be around um, building and launching your own brands on your own platform. So we feel like that there's all these kind of bad decisions that have to be made given all of those all those criteria. And that's what we try to avoid is we want a big centralized manufacturing. We think it's a much more efficient way to build and scale a brand to variableize all that fixed cost on a per unit basis. So you have predictable unit margins, but also have a massive amount of capacity such that you can drive unit costs into the ground as fast as possible. But we don't want to compete with our clients. If we're launching our own products, I think that would create a conflict with those brands. Every day we get up, our focus should be on how do we make our brands more successful so we make the nootropic uh, facilities more successful. And, and that's how we've gone about it. Now, Sacramento loves to make regulations and laws and so forth, and you have to comply with those. Can you give us a sense of what some of those are and how you take those off the plate of your clients? Well, I mean, first of all, all of the kind of regulatory overhead of handling fulfillment is now removed. A brand essentially sits entirely outside of the supply chain. Their job is to go to retailers uh, and delivery services to sell their brand in to essentially open the, those doors and get those brands, or sorry, those uh, retailers ordering products um, from us. And then we go ahead and fill those orders. But everything from procuring the initial biomass to testing that material uh, to bringing it into the facility processing it, extracting if necessary, packaging it, um, retesting it, palleting it, coordinating delivery uh, to the retail channel through a fulfillment agent. All of that is handled by Nootropic. So essentially the brand gets to avoid all of those regulations. Yeah, that's great. And do you have a lab right nearby that does the testing quickly? So given our volumes, we work with multiple different labs. Sometimes our brand partners have specific labs, labs that they've got a good relationship with that they bring to the table. Uh, oftentimes, we work with labs that are close uh, physically to us and are have more frequent pickup times. Sometimes it's a price point consideration. It really depends. But but we've got, I think, probably seven or eight labs at this point in time that we're working with on a fairly consistent basis. Okay. And is there like a single point of contact once you're onboarded? Do you work with like a project manager or is it an account executive or do you have software as the primary interface with Nootropic? What does that look like once you come on board? Yeah, I, I would say that in general, working with us is a very, you know, white glove experience. Uh, there's a whole team that works um, with the client up front. Uh, first of all, to vet the client to make sure that they're going to be a good fit for our business model and that we believe that they've got the financial resources and the business acumen and the sales capacity to, to scale their brand within our, within our platform. So it's a fairly lengthy process of vetting the client and then onboarding that client and making sure all of the kind of components of that product uh, from packaging to design, all of those things are plugged into our model and we understand exactly what the supply chain looks like. So that's really a three to four month process. Once you're up and running, uh, you work directly with an account representative. Uh, we're in the process right now of working to provide an online interface that'll help 
uh, our clients track product as it moves through our facilities. But generally speaking right now, that is, you know, one or two different account reps that work on a day-to-day basis with you. Okay. And why focus exclusively on California? A, from a regulatory standpoint, we're forbidden exporting product out of the state. So if we're going to go ahead and start supplying Nevada or Oregon or someplace even like Massachusetts or New York, we have to build facilities in those markets to supply those markets. So we are driven to this decision from a regulatory standpoint. Okay. Any plans to move outside of California and expand market or not right now? No, 100%. We believe that ultimately what is going to be most valuable for our clients is for us to have facilities in every single adult use market such that you can work with us and we're going to assure product reliability and consistency in every market in which you want to operate. So our goal is first, we're looking to expand into Massachusetts. We're down the path on looking at a facility to get that up and running uh, in that market. Um, and that'll be our first foray into the East Coast. We think New Jersey is obviously a very interesting market, Pennsylvania, Florida, Michigan. Um, but at the end of the day, our, you know, a big chunk of what we are going to specialize in is not just the competency of producing high quality product in our facilities, but it's also developing new facilities and getting those facilities up and running in new regulatory environments. What about a potential client that says, hey, you know, how can how can Alex and his team really understand the nuances of my business? You know, we look for a certain terpene profile or, or this or that. Um, and you know, they, they can't do it as well as us. I mean, you probably see that type of thing. How do you help them get their arms around, you know, breaking down how the whole operation works? Well, I'd say in general, you know, a lot of clients come in feeling like, you know, they've got a secret sauce and that their product is completely unique in the marketplace. And, and I think we value and respect that IP. So, you know, a big chunk of the, you know, what we feel like are advantages over other manufacturers who are also brands in the market is you can feel very safe with your IP here. We go through an entire process where brands are asked to identify specific steps in their um, in their process that they believe are proprietary we vet that process, and once we essentially segment off that component of the supply chain that is proprietary to the brands, we've got a whole uh, mechanism or a whole kind of protocol that gets implemented to, to making sure that we're protecting that IP from other brands that we work with. That is something I, I don't think you're going to see when you've got another brand you're working with and you're buying their excess capacity, but they've got competing products directly in the marketplace. I don't think there's any way a brand could feel comfortable that, that IP is safe. So. You know, I, I think that's true. I think um, brands are getting more successful at, at developing innovative delivery systems and innovative um, formulations that are unique to the marketplace. And it's our job to protect that IP. Okay. So there's a lot less upfront cost because there's no uh, capital outlay for buildings and staff and so forth for the operations since you're handling that. And that frees up time um, to allow your clients to focus on their core competency and for your successful clients that you see like, hey, this partnership's working out really well, what do they consider the core competency to be? Is it back to that? It's like, we know what our, we're, we're a brand and um, a sales and marketing company. Is that really what it boils down to? I think that's it. I, I think it's, um, it's enabling the brand to focus on what is product market fit. 
right? It, because all brands, I think they'll start out with a specific product, but almost certainly within months or maximum years, they're looking at expanding the scope of their, their product mix to be able to, to boost the amount of revenue they can generate from each of the retail outlets that they've got access to. And that means new product um, uh, development. So, so I think that's a, that's a process that almost every brand uh, goes through. Um, and that's part of, I think, the magic of, of working on this platform is um, launching those new products is vastly more cost effective. So they're able to kind of harness this customer data and having this direct communication with the, the retailer to start to look at if, if we're hitting this specific demographic, what are other products can we add to our roster? They're going to hit that same demographic effectively, and then they can launch those new SKUs on our platform um, relatively trivially, or at least vastly easier than if they own their own manufacturing system um, or they're looking to go ahead and, and outsource that with a brand new partner. So it's, I, I think the, the focus the brand should be on understanding product market fit. And then once those products are developed and ready to launch, build sales velocity. And again, being able to rely on us to make sure that we can scale up to meet that sales velocity is absolutely critical and a, and a big chunk of the reason why we think we're so valuable. So you mentioned a little bit about how you vet clients before they come on board. They need business acumen. They need product market fit. They probably need a certain amount of capital to know that they're in, they're in the game and can, can partner with you. What else kind of describes the ideal clients for, you know, people that are listening and saying, Hey, I, you know, maybe I want to work with Nootropic or my business would be a good fit. H- how can you help them get an idea if they are? Uh, I would say the number one thing we look for is natural sales talent and, and relationships in the business where we've had, I think, a great deal of success are with folks that have some history in cannabis. Uh, they have tight relationships with retailers already, and they've demonstrated an ability to, to build sales velocity with those retailers in the past. Um, that is of critical importance to us. I can't tell you the number of times we interact with partners that um, you know they think they've got a unique product offering, uh, or they've got a brand name or a celebrity name behind them, and they think that's going to be sufficient to uh, to really be successful in California. Um, when I'd say that it's really about on-the-ground execution at the retail channel, working with those retailers, understanding what their objectives are, helping to meet those objectives, and constantly evolving uh, their product offering to meet evolving consumer demands. Uh, this is not something... And I think it's viable in the short term potentially to outsource some sales just to get things kickstarted. But at the end of the day, brands have to be committed to putting resources on the ground in the state to actually execute around building sales velocity. Okay. Now, I want to kind of get an idea of the unit economics here. Is there a successful client that you don't have to mention their name, but you could maybe mention what their costs are and what they sell for at retail? So, they can get an idea of what a profit margin that's realistic might look like? Yeah. So in general, I think a good way to look at this is, and I'll just say, let, let's say you're trying to hit a, a $20 wholesale price for some SKU. What we aim at is a situation in which uh, that product, we're going to spend somewhere around 10% of that on third-party logistics fulfillment, basically getting that product from our warehouse uh, onto the store shelf. Uh, again, not the sales function, but just the actual mechanics of getting that product on that store shelf is about 
generally speaking, our cost of actually making a, a $20 wholesale product is going to be about $10. Um, there's some products like edibles that, that might be, you know, uh, more like uh, 6 to $8. And there are other products that might be 11 or $12. But but across the portfolio, you're looking at somewhere around 50% of wholesale costs is the actual cost of producing that item. So what you're left with there is 10% is going to fulfillment and 50% to the raw cogs of producing that product. And you're winding up with somewhere around a cumulative margin of 40%. Generally speaking, our brands are going to wind up getting $4 of that and we're going to get $4 or about 20% of the wholesale price. And that's, I think, a good way to, to look at it. You know, we're, there's a lot of SGNA and, and overhead generally in, in running our business. Um, there's certainly a lot of sales and marketing to be done with a brand, and we want to give them really the power necessary to build successful brands that can scale. Um, so we, we look at that as a as a fair distribution of of the proceeds out of each uh, each unit. Okay. And you know, if you were just talking with maybe somebody that was starting out in the industry, you're you're given some really great ideas here to make your new brand successful too, even if they're not ready to partner with. Nootropics. So if you, let's say you have a new brand, it's still in your, your mind. It sounds like you need to raise capital or have capital yourself. You definitely need the relationships with all the retailers and understand how they think. It's not just a, it's not just the relationship, but understanding how to create a win-win. And then you need to have product market fit. And so if someone comes to you with those three things, you're like, wow, you're 80% of the way there. Or do you feel like add one or two things more? Yeah, I, I think we want to make sure the product is fully baked. Uh, we are not a product development shop. So by the time the product comes to us, we're about operating scale, not about product development. So these products have to be fully formulated and, and ready uh, for us. The packaging needs to be designed. We do uh, tend to work with brands to, to make sure their packaging uh, works better within our automation system so we can drop unit costs down. Uh, but generally speaking, the product should also be there. Okay. So when you're looking at business plans, then there is probably a few things that, you know, you touched upon this year, but is there anything that a business, someone who's working on a business plan now should make sure they have when they're creating their cannabis business plan, when they're going to pitch investors? Like, what do you think a lot of people leave off? Because I want to kind of help the the businesses that are still early on, but might want to partner with you later on? Yeah, I think one of the most important things you got to focus on right now in cannabis is understanding where price points sit in the marketplace for different products. Uh, I routinely see people come into the marketplace. They're making assumptions about what they think they can sell a product for. And I'd say universally right now, two of the prime drivers that, that drive purchase decisions by consumers is how much THC am I getting for what price? Um, and while you know that seems a little antithetical to where I think the, the model will ultimately be, it's almost like you know walking into um, a liquor store and saying, you know, all I'm concerned about is how much liquor am I getting for what price? You know, I think the market will evolve from that, but that's fundamentally a lot of the purchase decisions are, are made that way. So I think you've got to accept that as reality. And uh, regardless of where you're looking to play on the top shelf or middle shelf or bottom shelf of the marketplace, you have to have a very good understanding of where price points sit and what the specifications of the product within that price point you have to hit in order to be successful. Okay. Right. 
So you have your finger on the pulse of that, but how do other companies get their their finger on the pulse of that? Do they work with like a headset or a, a BDS analytics or some other consulting company that provides that data? I think that's precisely it. I, I think you can get access to the data that way. That that can be a little expensive. So if you're just going through the initial product development phase, a lot of it's going out to talk to as many different uh, people who are actively selling into the marketplace and retailers to understand where those price points sit. I think you can get a fairly good cross-section if you kind of hit a few retailers in Southern California and a few in Northern California, you're going to get a pretty good sense as to where the retail price sits for these products. Um, and you're able to extrapolate from that where the wholesale price has to be in order to get in those shelves. So, so I think, you know, you can collect that data manually. You can collect that data through third parties like salespeople who are actively selling in the marketplace or market research firms like Headset or BDS. Uh, we also actually, you know, we have a subscription to, to Headset. So we actually, as we're going through this exercise with all our brand partners, we actually plug in our headset data about uh, the price points and kind of who the market leaders are and the specific SKU category that a, a brand is looking to launch. And we provide access to the data as part of our uh, integrated onboarding process. Okay. And how do you feel about when federal rescheduling of cannabis is coming? Do you think it's going to be soon or far or what's your general thought on that? I think it's always two to three years away and it will be in two to three years. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, I, I think it's, it's interesting when I first got into this back in 2015, I think the, you know, if I had to pick an over under as to where, you know, people thought it would be uh, most of what I heard is was kind of three to five years. Uh, and here we are five years later and I think we're closer, but I think it's still difficult to predict, uh, you know, assuming, um, uh, Biden goes ahead and, and takes office on the 20th. Um, it seems pretty clear that there's a lot of momentum behind the States Act. Uh, now, States doesn't um, allow for federal descheduling, but it does remove a lot of the impediments that really are, from my perspective, the most substantial headwinds to cannabis being um, treated as a real business, and that is banking restrictions um, and 280E, which is this onerous um, uh, tax obligation that we, uh, as dealers of a Schedule One substance, uh, have to um, to deal with. So, if you can remove 280E, uh, and if you can remove the banking restrictions, uh, part of what the cannabis business suffers from, and generally, is lack of liquidity in the financial markets to support these businesses. Um, you know, you go into a tech business or pretty much any other uh, type of vertical market that's federally legal. There are thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of investors and institutions that can support those organizations in their growth objectives using capital. That is not the case in cannabis. Um, the rates tend to be very predatory. Um, it's a highly liquid market, so the terms can be very, very onerous beyond just the interest rates on debt. Um, you know, there have been cases right back in 2017, 2018, when equity was relatively cheap. But that is not the case right now. So part of what we're looking forward to, I think, is um, hopefully passage of states. I think there's broad Republican support in the Senate, which is really the only thing that I think could hold it up at this point in time. So as long as McConnell listens to his constituents and um, it can get through the Senate, I think there's broad bipartisan support for the States Act. And I think that would be a revolution in terms of how we finance and scale these companies. you got a lot of moving parts in the business you're in with people, process, technology, how do you see cannabis manufacturing and operations involve, evolving over the next few years? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, two things. 
you know, our number one competitor is the black market. You know, people always talk about who, who's the company if they're out there. I, I don't think, you know, California can support 20 new tropics. And there's really only one of the company, I think, right now that is, is close to our, our operating scale and ambition for the market. So we compete with the black market. That, that's our number one competitor, and it's the 800-pound gorilla, right? It's currently occupying probably somewhere around 80% market share in California, and we're chipping away at it, but it's going to take some time. So the only way this really works is if we're able to drive the production cost through industrialization, mechanization, automation, uh, every single type of you know, strategy we can use to reduce costs, such that we're able to retail product at somewhere around a 20 or 30% premium over black market prices. Um, I think consumers will pay a premium for legal products, uh, A, because it's legal, but B, also because it's tested and they know it's, it's safe. Um, but they're not going to pay, you know, 100% premium for that product, which is really what the market's asking them to do right now. So we have to figure out as an industry how to, uh, through these steps uh, and through the industrialization of this crop, drive these prices down to a point where we can compete effectively on price with the black market. Um, and once that happens, I think you're going to see a very, very rapid transition of people over to that. But, you know, we're, it's, it's going to take some time, but we're getting pretty close. And where are you in the capital raising process, Alex? So we've raised, I think actually we just brought in some more cash today. So we're a little over $25 million of cash raised. Predominantly at this point in time is debt. You know, there's a, a whole host of different ways in which you can finance these businesses. Fundamentally, there's a lot of assets that we hold, both in terms of equipment and receivables that we can finance against. So we, we've definitely done quite a bit of work around uh, capitalizing the business using debt. But fundamentally, you know, we are looking to go out and raise a much larger chunk of capital where the business is uh, starting to get uh, to operating scale. We should be breaking even on an accrual basis here within the next uh, quarter. And once we do that, we think that we've demonstrated that the business can uh, be self-sufficient and ultimately needs capital to grow to meet all this market requirement. So um, our goal is, you know, we're continuing to raise a small amount of cash right now to, to bridge the company. But once we get done with that, we're looking to raise uh, probably, I think, our appetite's closer to 20 to $30 million uh, sometime in the first half of next year. Okay. And is that open to accredited investors? Only. Yes, we are not looking to do a public offering, so we can only take a credit investor money. Okay. And as we close in a couple of minutes, I'll get your contact information for people that are interested in reaching out to you about that if they're accredited. But before we do that, let's go over to the personal development questions. Alex, is there a book that's had a big impact on your life or your way of thinking that you'd like to share? Uh, there's there's really two books. Um, one is uh, a book by Max Tegmark called Our Mathematical Universe. Uh, which I think is fascinating. It's a pretty dense read, uh, but I think it gives you a really good perspective on the way things work at a very uh, fundamental level. And the other one is called uh, Radical Abundance. It's a book by uh, Eric Drexler, uh, which talks about, um, you know, massive changes in terms of how the way uh, the world works and and what's, what's, you know, underlying those trends and and what's creating all this radical abundance in the way we we get through uh, day-to-day existence. So that's, those are two books I think have been pretty impactful on me. What's the most interesting thing going on in your field besides what you do? I think the primary thing that's fascinating for me is the diversity in product delivery systems. If you look at cannabis, you know, a decade ago, 
the only way of really consuming it, uh, except for really fringe activity, was you were smoking it. You know, you were taking some flour, you were um, putting into a pipe, or you were grinding it up and putting it into a pre-roll, and, and you were you were inhaling it, and that was pretty much it. Um, you've got an explosion in things like drinks. Um, we're working with a company called Click for sublingual delivery. Another company called Amura who has a very unique way of actually consuming flour, but in a healthier um, fashion. There's a whole host of different work going on around the delivery of THC and these other cannabinoids and terpenes and flavonoids. And that's, I think, one of the, the most interesting things. Okay. What's one thought you have that most people would disagree with you on? Uh, I think it's um, driven by those books. I think it's about abundance. I think we are entering a, an age in which um, exponential growth uh, and a lot of underlying factors are driving us towards a situation of radical abundance. Um, I think that's uh, foundational. And I'm also a big believer uh, in uh, you know minimal income for uh, all people. I think there's a way in which we can solve a lot of our problems by a negative taxation system. So I get into lots of debates around inflation with, uh, with uh, some uh, economic minded people around me, but, but I think there's a, there's something to be said for helping um, kind of provide a, a fundamental framework that allows people to, to operate on minimal income and, and um, really unlocks, I think a lot of the entrepreneurial aspects of our economy. Yeah. I mean, Inflation's a tough thing to measure, and I think about it a lot. I don't know if you've ever gone to the Chapwood Index that measures a lot of different inflation uh, rates for different products in different markets and so forth. But it seems like the inflation, the CPI, the way the government measures it, it takes out uh, you know energy and some volatile things, and it also has uh, hedonics adaptation. I think it's hedonics substitution, and I think it's the third one's adaptation and those three levers really allow them to um, make inflation look like it's much less than it is. For example, like when I was, uh, gosh, 10 years old, uh, a Snickers bar at my local uh, pharmacy where I grew up was 25 cents and now it's $1.25. So that's roughly 11% a year uh, Snickers inflation and the Snickers has gotten smaller. So how do you think about inflation? Because it's something I you know, it really favors debtors over savers. And it's something I think about a lot. Where do you weigh in on that? Yeah. And I think, listen, I think that's a, it's a critical question to understand because there's a lot of disagreement over what the actual core inflation rate looks like in the economy. Um, but I think it's part of what's driving um, a lot of this wealth inequality is you're seeing a lot of people who just day-to-day existence is becoming too expensive. And a lot of it's around things like housing. We're getting to a point, obviously, where, where housing has increased at a, a rate that is just simply unsustainable for some people to uh, to live in these areas. And it tends to impact people who are still critical to making you know our local economy work, but they simply can't reside within that location. And then they're stuck with doing things like you know driving an hour and a half back and forth, uh, which not just erodes their quality of life, but puts further financial pressure on them. Uh, you know, cars are expensive, gas is expensive, insurance is expensive, all those different things. So, so I think it's it's getting to a place in in some of these locations where it's it's unsustainable. You know, so I think there's there's a question around core inflation and and what rate at which that's expanding. But I think there's also a more fundamental question, which is a lot of what's if you look at what happened this summer, right? We 
push, what, $4.5 trillion into the U.S. economy over a fairly short time period. You know, the money supply essentially exploded over this time period. But where is that allocated? I mean, part of what I think is surprising to me, if you're a capitalist, if you're paying a minimum, let's say it's a $1,500 minimum wage to, to all people, I would venture to say that for 80, 90% of the U.S. population, 100% of that cash would make it right back into circulation. That's just a direct injection of cash by the federal government into the money supply. And, and all of that would wind up going back to the asset holders, right? It's going to go into rent. It's going to go into all these different things. So we definitely have to look at how that would overall affect inflation and how you'd have to increase those benefits over time such you didn't wind up with kind of an inflationary spiral, but you also allow these people to actually live and work in these societies without going bankrupt constantly. So it's an interesting question, but it's, uh, like I said, it's, it's probably a longer conversation. <laughs> Right. In the last 10 minutes. Of, uh, right, right. I, I love this stuff, but you're right. It's not directly cannabis related. So we'll end it there. <laughs> so Alex, you know, we talked about a lot of things here. So just re- remind people exactly what kind of products we talked about what's an ideal client for you, but just remind them what kind of products you manufacture and can help them with. Yeah. I mean, we try to focus on the, the major product categories in the marketplace. Uh, that's really packaged flour. Uh, it's pre-rolls. It's solventless extracts, it's solvent-based extracts, and the category that we're just now embarking upon right now is um, ingestibles. Uh, we're doing also vape carts, sorry, vape carts another big chunk of it, but ingestibles. Ingestibles is somewhere around, you know, if you, you include beverages and edibles, it's somewhere around 18% of the marketplace, give or take. You know, beverages are a very small category, but are growing at an outsized pace, and I think, you know, over the next decade, or it could become a much larger part of the overall market. Um, but that's the one, you know, call it fifth of the marketplace that we're not currently attaching revenue to. And that's what we're going to be adding. But pretty much, you know, if you look at it this way, you walk in a dispensary, um, we're going to be manufacturing pretty much any product you see on the shelf. We'll be manufacturing for different brands, um, but we don't want a single product category to, uh, to elude our focus. And for accredited investors and potential clients, how can they reach out to you to learn more? So uh, my email address is alex at nootropic, N-E-W-T-R-O-P-I-C.com. We have a website, nootropic.com, where you can go to the investor section and get access directly to us there, or you can email me uh, or brian at nootropic.com. Well, Alex, thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it, and good luck with everything you're doing. Matt, I really appreciate the time. If you enjoyed the show today, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever app you might be using to listen to the show. Every five-star review helps us to bring the best guest to you. Learn more at cannainsider.com forward slash iTunes. What are the five disruptive trends that will impact the cannabis industry in the next five years? Find out with your free report at cannainsider.com forward slash trends. Have a suggestion for an awesome guest on Canna Insider? Simply send us an email at feedback at cannainsider.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please do not take any information from Canna Insider or its guests as medical advice. Contact your licensed physician before taking cannabis or using it for medical treatments. Promotional consideration may be provided by select guests, advertisers, or companies featured in Canna Insider. 
Lastly, the host or guests on Canada Insider may or may not invest in the companies or entrepreneurs profiled on the show. Please consult your licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Final disclosure to see if you're still paying attention. This little whistle jingle you're listening to will get stuck in your head for the rest of the day. Thanks for listening and look for another Canada Insider episode soon. Take care. Bye-bye.